0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. So, I've been tossing around this idea in my head for a very long time about how ideas form in the world of creativity, especially in terms of being an artist. And I often teach from the standpoint of this notion of making as thinking. It's a concept that, you know, a fair number of people embrace, but Oftentimes, especially in the academic world, we have a hard time wrapping our, our heads around this idea that the idea doesn't come first, that making can actually be what spawns the idea, that it comes from the physical act of, you know, getting down to business, so to speak. And I wanted to talk about that today and offer up a story of a kind of... Reassurance, or I won't say proof because I feel like proof is a little bit too severe, but a reassurance that this is factual, that this is real, and that comes from a story near and dear to my heart. So, this is Art Shorts. All right, so let's talk a little bit about art in general and this idea of um, what exists in a piece of art. What, what When we come to a painting or a sculpture and we sort of look at it in its very, very basic um, components, we can divide the pie of what exists in this thing between two primary elements, the form and the content. So imagine a pie divided however you like, 80, 20, 60, 40, 50, 50, but form and content, and what does this mean? Well, it's fairly straightforward. The form is the elements that make up what it is we're looking at. Is it paint on canvas? Is it um, mixed media with a bunch of clock parts? Is it stone? Is it wood? Is it some traditional material? So that would be the form, right? And the content is everything that is present in the element of ideas, in what it's about, Subject matter, um, the underlying story behind it. That's the content. So, when we oftentimes set out to make a piece of art, we think. We sit there, we stare at a blank canvas, we stare at a blank sketchbook, we stare at the walls of our studio surrounded by things, and we're pressured by this idea of what do I do? What do I make? What do I do next? And we often feel like we, we feel compelled to formulate that idea almost entirely before we even set out to pick something up, a material, and manipulate it. Okay, well, this seems to make sense because we think, oh, well, artists are conceptual people. They work from ideas. They, they build things around complex ideas. Uh, you know, complex thoughts. And oftentimes you look at a piece of work and someone says, gosh, how did you think of that? This is frustrating to me, especially as a college professor, and that, you know, it's even supported by the academic institutions that we work within. You know, we talk about ideas as if they are the foundational underpinning to all things. I once even heard a student say to a teacher, when they were being brought, they were they were new to the school and. They were talking, getting to know some of the faculty, and they said, "So, are are you a maker or a thinker?" And I, I almost all the food that was in my mouth at this little event, sh- almost shot right out of my face at this notion that there was a dividing line between those two things, and that if this was a question being asked in a public sphere, this 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 must have some kind of uh, this must have some kind of grounding. This must be something that is popular. <laughs> um, kind of wanted to, to die a little bit. So, so let's get back to this for a second. Form and content and, and the space between the two. Um, you know, when I set out to teach young minds, young creatives, or old creatives, doesn't really matter about this idea of making art, I try to instill upon them the value behind the physical act of making, and that it doesn't need to begin with the idea. Okay, I talked to them about how, well, if you can't think of what to make, start making, and what does that even mean? Well, if you're sitting there with a sketchbook, make marks on a page. Uh, Copy something that you see. Um, If you're sitting there in your studio full of objects because you're more sculpturally oriented, begin to tinker grab materials test connections test relationships test how different things weigh and feel in your hands and react to one another and, and and what happens is is you begin to see in these relationships you begin to see connections you begin to see you begin to see how things speak to one another and they're not speaking words they're not speaking ideas directly but Things begin to happen. Formulations begin to occur. And then you push forward. You you keep working in that direction. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like a free form kind of thinking, right? It's almost like a stream of consciousness. But instead of using words, we're using images or objects. And, you know, it it has an impact on the way we think. It's just not the way we're used to. There's a neuroscientist named Frank Wilson who wrote a fantastic book called The Hand who basically said that the physical enabling or activation of the hand itself stimulates idea centers in the brain and not necessarily always the other way around, the way we've been led to believe it works. I think conceptual art did this to us to some degree. Conceptual art sort of lives so heavily in the idea That we feel like that's what needs to begin things so you know we've encountered this kind of artist before that you know i'm so bored with the idea of you know when i when i encounter a painter who shows me a painting and they say well you know in this painting you will see um there's the image of this symbol, that symbol, whether it's cash, cigarettes, religious symbols, and, and these things all represent the following ideas. As if the accumulation of these things, the accumulation of all these symbols carefully placed in a composition adds up to what? The, the full realization of some idea that now that I get it, I've won? I walk away from the painting satisfied. I walk away from the painting with this notion of, "Oh, I see how all those things come to." To me this is to me this is no different than reading a Wikipedia entry. Right? Because what do we have in a Wikipedia entry? A lot of words, some hyperlinks. All of those words and hyperlinks are nothing really more than symbols that mean things, kind of language that I put together in my head. And I formulate knowledge, or I formulate uh, an understanding, right? And so paintings that live in this kind of symbology are are, are really thin to me. There's this notion of gestalt in a work of art. Gestalt is where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Meaning, if I add one and one and one and one and one, I get twelve, not five. But when that painter says to me, yes, the dollar bills in this stack in the painting represent man's obsession with capitalism and the cross represent, I'm like, oh, come on. That's one and one makes two. Great, I'm glad we can do math. And I'm on a rant here. I'm I'm, I'm ranting a little bit. But gestalt is what makes art beautiful. Gestalt is what makes it human. It's what connects us to it in a deeper sense. When the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and we can't understand where the math goes I'm gonna say right, right? Because one and one and one doesn't make seven it makes three. But when it makes seven and gestalt is present and the math has gone wrong, or in this case right, we, we have something that that mystery, that wonder, sparks us into and there's an excitement about that right and so gestalt is one of those things i think that comes out of not careful formulation not careful planning not like the mathematical problem gestalt comes from a place that is deeper and sometimes i wonder in all of my 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 um program writing syllabus development for for academia is can gestalt even be taught I can teach you what gestalt means. I can teach you what gestalt is supposed to do. But there's no formula necessarily to give you the tools to create the feeling of gestalt in a work of art. That comes from somewhere else. So I, I, I wonder sometimes if making the work before thinking about it is a higher form of thought right the physical act of engaging the hand activating that idea center in the brain and somehow getting a response a physical response a tangible response that has more meaning than what my brain was capable of developing in merely formulating an idea Alright, so I said this was going to lead to a story near and dear to my heart, and it is, and here's how this works. Well first of all, before I get to that story, let's think about this idea of making is thinking. Does that mean that I'm anti-content? Does that mean that I refuse to think of an idea before I make something? No, of course not. It's absurd. Does it mean that the content isn't there at all when I just begin to tinker, when I begin to make marks on a page? Is there no content? Is it void? of content? Also no. And that's a little bit harder to prove. That's a little bit harder to think about. Alright, so now for that story. When I was in graduate school at the Rhode Island School of Design, I had the honor, the sheer astounding honor, of taking a class with a woman named Marcia Tucker. She was our professor for a class that uh, it was an elective that I had there. I unfortunately don't recall the name of that class at this time. I I really should go back and look that up somehow in my transcripts. Marsha Tucker was the founding director of the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York. She had worked for the MoMA. She had worked for the Whitney. And after being sort of fired from the Whitney, in a hot second and a whirlwind of activity on a weekend, she developed the new Museum for Contemporary Art, which actually first lived in the new school uh, at 65 Fifth Avenue before it really got its you know foundational footings in a larger building. And you know that was a really good place for it to begin because it was a really highly conceptual place that was going to represent unknown artists, emerging artists, underrepresented artists. And Marsha Tucker and a handful of people went on to make that you know, one of the you know uh, institutions of New York City art, at, international art for that matter. Marsha's a brilliant, was a brilliant, brilliant thinker, and a compassionate teacher, a caring individual that we all looked up to immensely. And that semester at Rhode Island School of Design, where we took that class with her, was something that was so important in my development. I know it was pivotal in the development of the other people in my class. And she would, on a weekly basis, we would meet once a week for a little over an hour. But on a weekly basis, we would have something totally new to look at from her. Now, being in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, she would, (laughs) and she lived in New York City. There were occasions when she would say, All right, next week for class, we will meet on the corner of Broadway and Broome in New York City. I'll meet you on the corner. And I thought, wow, that's the longest commute to class I've ever had in my life. I've got to get all the way down, that's four hours away. So she, but 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 trust me, the reward, the benefit for making that trip and being with her was monumental. So she gave us an assignment once. It was, a, it was one of those assignments that, you know, consists of like a single line of instruction that is, you know, shrouded in mystery or, you know, just really hard to penetrate. And we walked away from it with a lot of questions but she really wouldn't answer them and the assignment was this she said all right for next week's class i want you to make a work of art that has no aesthetic and you'll present that in class next week have a nice day and we were all like what and we were graduate students by this time not first year students in an undergraduate program where all of a sudden 19 hands fly up into the air and say well how long should it be what exactly are you looking for what colors should it be what materials should i use how much time should this take me exactly what exactly are you looking for (laughs) you you didn't do that You, you just didn't do that this was presented to you in the way that we knew marcia wanted to present it to us and so we walked away with this question and we pondered it for days i can remember sitting in bars Walking to class, eating breakfast, asking my other peers, what are you doing for Marcia's class? What does this even mean? And we were stumped. And I actually couldn't wait until we got to class to see. And so what did I choose to do here? To make a work with no aesthetic to me seemed, every time I came up with something, every time I came up with an idea, I would realize, wait, that has aesthetic value. That has an aesthetic. That has you know and so at one point we ran into her at one point we got a little bit of a hint of clarification in our confusion over what this meant and she revealed to us um what i'll call a hint she said well in order for something to have no aesthetic let's just say that the experience of hearing an explanation of the thing is just as equal to or just as valuable as seeing the thing okay so this might have been a point of clarification or this might have been even more confusing but no matter what I came up with idea-wise I always was struck down in my own mind by the fact that I could find some kind of aesthetic element in it so in a last-ditch effort to put something out for this class so I didn't fail the assignment thinking that you know I just couldn't do this I took a quote that I knew of that said we are all failures We all die. I printed it out on a piece of paper, put it in a frame, and brought it to class. And I thought, well, okay, this little bit of text that is, you know, really, um, you know, frankly kind of depressing um, should serve the purpose. Because if I explained this quote, seeing it shouldn't make any difference. And so I brought that to class. And I watched as 18 or 19 people all attempted this answer one classmate got up into the middle of our circle stood in the floor stood on the floor in front of all of us and spit on the floor Uh, another one who was in the glass blowing program at risd made these beautiful prince rupert drops which are basically little ribbons of glass that are pulled when the glass is hot and they dry almost like a gestural mark or they cool almost like a gestural mark in the air But because they were not properly annealed, they're incredibly um, brittle. And she took them and squeezed a pair of cutting pliers onto the tip, and they instantly dissolved into a dust that almost didn't even exist. So they were there one minute and gone the next, thus maybe erasing the aesthetic. And of course, a million other pieces in between that just didn't... Every one of us could find fault in any one of these projects. And, And that, obviously, was the point is that one could not make a work of art that had no aesthetic. So what this said to me was that the form content balance that I spoke about earlier is always in play with both elements present to some degree or another. In other words, you could not have pure content and you could not have pure form And so if we look at Kazimir Malievich's, you know, black square painting, right, which is a a mere black square on a canvas, um, or if we look at uh, a a work by, say, Joseph Kosuth, or, um, you know, uh, a work of high conceptual um, uh, sort of regard, that the, the content element, no matter how large of the pie the content takes up in that piece, The form element exists. The form element is always there. Marsha taught us this. She said that there was no such thing as a work of art that could have no aesthetic. That the value of seeing a thing always outweighed, always outweighed the value of the description of the thing. And that was profound to me. It placed an enormous amount of weight on sight or on experience. Sound could be part of that as well. And so, you know, I, I walked away from that knowing that number one, the, the, the ability to spend all of my time thinking about a work that couldn't have any form, right? And the, the, the approach to this, the, the problem solving element in answering her assignment is the polar opposite of making his thinking. And it proved to me to be somewhat impossible, that it was impossible to create a work of pure conceptual nature that didn't, you know, exist in the aesthetic arena somehow. Which tells me then that if I take the opposite tack, it is impossible to create a work that is purely of the formal nature that does not possess the element of content, in some degree. And the only difference is that the content is not as easily seen as the form is. When I was trying to answer her assignment, and I kept striking each idea down, saying, oh, this has aesthetic value, this has aesthetic value, is because I could see the aesthetic value, I could see what was there. In content, making is thinking. You can't see the content right the content has it's there but it needs to be revealed slowly it comes out slowly this validates making as thinking it proves that you can get to an idea through the making of a thing even if the idea is not necessarily present and as artists we should know this anyway we're filters for everything that's put into us around us everything that happens to us in the public sphere culturally privately, personally, deeply personally, all of these things sort of function as that filtration material that stuff passes through, comes out at the end of our fingertips and, and, and materializes in the world. So we know that if we get to work intuitively, that the ideas are present in those pieces, but they're not... Standing up like a billboard, like a wall of text in a museum, saying, Here's what you're about to experience. So that's today's podcast. Talking about the idea that the idea doesn't necessarily have to be at the foundation of the making, that the making can come first. So if you're stuck, If you feel a creative urge, if you feel that, let's say you're not an artist and you decide you want to make something, you've got that urge and it comes to all of us. I think it's part of human nature, but you don't have that idea. So what? Start making. The idea will come. And even if it doesn't come immediately or when the piece is finished or a year after the piece is finished, sit with that thing. It will come to you. It's kind of a really brilliant and beautiful thing that our minds can build these concepts around the things that we see. All right, that's going to do it for today. I'd like to remind you that I am on Patreon, and I would love, love, love your support. I'm trying to pump one of these things out every week if I can. Plus, Terry and I produce The Large Glass on Tuesday nights where we bring you a new artist or art-related theme that we talk about every week on Twitch TV. It's a heavy undertaking, but we love bringing you this content. We love bringing you stories about art, stories about artists, and hopefully enriching your lives with them. Hopefully bringing something to you that you can't find on mainstream media. And yeah, it's a little bit more time that you got to sit down and listen to us. It's not as easily digestible as a swipe of a TikTok video. Not that those things aren't brilliant. I love those too. But we're looking to do something a little bit more here. So hopefully you can find it in your heart to give us a little love or support along the way. I'm Todd Lambricks, and this is Art Shorts. See you next time.